welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack, where yet again I've been left alone and everyone's gone to the pub. (laughs) But I've got a good one this week. I'm doing a good one this week in something that I don't know that much about. So this is going to be really interesting for me. This is Jonathan North, who is a writer and historian who specialises in the Napoleonic Wars. And he's written a dozen or so books, including Nelson in Naples and Killing Napoleon. But he's here today to talk about his newest book, Napoleon's Invasion of of Egypt. I don't know why I put Europe in the notes. (laughs) But Jonathan, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm fine. Well, he did also invade Europe. Let's be fair. It wasn't just Egypt. (laughs) And annoyingly, this is the third intro I've messed up in three episodes. <laughs> I got someone's book title wrong and I got the author's name wrong. <laughs> Fourth time lucky. I think, I think I'm going to have to hand the prep over to someone else. But uh, but that, that does set up quite nicely because obviously we know Napoleon, Napoleon did invade Europe, Spain, Portugal, Germany, part of Russia. Why was he, in, why was he invading Egypt in 1798? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a really strange uh, adventure that uh, uh, took place in 1798. So I think we probably better start with Napoleon himself. He's an important character, still uh, making films about him even. So, uh, um, yeah, he was um, only part of the reason, though. So a lot of people tend to uh, ascribe this episode to Napoleon's personal ambition. Um, he was definitely a, a leader rather than a follower. And of course, uh, the year before, he had just um, victoriously conquered Italy uh, in a really impressive way, basically imposing peace uh, on continental Europe. So very much a leader, very much uh, got to a dead end uh, by early 1798, uh, looking for new challenges. And one of the things about Napoleon, I think, that perhaps doesn't always come out is how much of a dreamer uh, he was. So in his youth, when he was in boarding school in uh, dreary French towns, he would give himself over to reading uh, history. And history in in those days uh, was very much boys' own adventure stuff. And he threw himself into studying the classics. And he had this real interest in Alexander the Great um, and the uh, ancient Greeks wars with Persia. And in in a sense, uh, that sort of remained with him. So he had an abiding interest in in Egypt and the Middle East. But it has to be said as well that he knew his geopolitics. Um, So he kind of combines dreaming with geopolitical ambition. Um, He was aware that France, uh, 1797, 1798, had decided war in Europe. It had conquered Italy pretty much a French lake with Spanish uh, alliance. Um, So Egypt, in a way, uh, would cement that um, French domination of the old uh, Greek-Roman world. If he could bring that into into the French Empire, then um, that was really beneficial. And of course, that 
would also play a role in uh, Napoleon's uh, uh, plans to to knock Britain out of the war. Of course, there were other players involved. Um, Napoleon's just one, albeit central character. But there's the French government also at work, and they they also share that ambition of knocking Britain out of the war. Why does Egypt matter to that? It's because in those days, uh, British trade and rule in India was on the rise, and a lot of um, goods and money was flowing from India through the Middle East uh, to Europe. And the French thought, well, if we seize and secure Egypt, then we can we can act as a, a, a barrier uh, to that trade. Um, so there's that's sort of the bigger picture, that economic war, that, that war between France and Britain. Egypt plays quite a central role. And what, there's another aspect to that, I think, that people don't always think of. In, and it's that um, the French and Europeans generally were starting to look at Egypt as uh, a place of great potential. Um, there was talk about the canal, even back uh, in the 1790s, about cutting a canal from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. There was an idea that Egypt could grow uh, sugarcane, coffee, wheat, cotton. Um, and um, the, obviously, Egypt's much closer to, to Europe than the West Indies, which had uh, hitherto been growing and sending to Europe all these colonial goods. And Europeans were starting to think, um, well, if we grew it through this stuff in Africa, actually, we wouldn't need to ship slaves across to the West Indies at all. We could, we could keep them where they are. And the British and the Danes were already starting to think in the 1790s in places like Sierra Leone that they could do this. And, and I think the French government it certainly was planning to do this sort of thing in, in Egypt. So there's a lot of um, sort of conversation in corridors about resources and trade and wealth. And I think the last point is that generally Napoleon and the French government, they both thought that, well, if we just kick the door in, the whole structure will just collapse. They, they, they thought Egypt was a, an easy target. So I think that's all the background to this this rather weird and wonderful uh, adventure. Yeah, it, it does sort of make economic sense, doesn't it? I mean, especially the, a good chunk of the West Indies, especially following the War of Independence, was still very much under British control. And I think the French had what, Guadeloupe and Martinique. That's so if right. They, want, they just wanted their own colony. It would just be that they could, if they took Egypt, they could have so much more of a landmass. It does. It makes it makes complete sense, and also. In the 1790s, the, the French West Indies islands, not only were they being attacked by the British, but those that remained with the French were in, they had huge slave revolts following the revolution. So there was a lot of uh, anarchy and turmoil. And the French not really having a, a brilliant navy at that point meant that that long transatlantic crossing was very, very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, the, uh, rising in Haiti, wasn't it? Was it That's Haiti? right, yeah. There was a, a huge series of uh, very bloody uh, risings uh, in Haiti. And, uh, of course, it's a part of the world that was very um, dominated by things like yellow fever. And so, uh, I think French planners were starting to think these are perhaps the best things to hold on to. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know from the limited stuff I've done on the sort of this period, there's the British, arm, British units that were sent out to 
that the British colonies were considered sort of units that you sent off to die. So that's where you sent your put any criminals. It's like we'll put them in the units that are going out to grenades. That's right. They're, they're, the, they're the expendables and the deplorables and the undesirables. And uh, it was really um, incredible mortality rates um, in uh, West Indies and West Africa. I think that um, generally the, the view was that Egypt had a much healthier healthier climate, but that's before they encountered bubonic plague. <laughs> Which is always a bit of a buzzkill. Put <laughs> <laughs> it mildly. Uh, so they've, they've travelled across the, the Mediterranean. How, how was the journey and what, what were they met when they, when they got to Egypt? So, yeah, the journey um, is quite a long one. So they set off in the early summer 1798. In a huge fleet, I think there's something like 300 transports, wow, and a good number of men of war and frigates to to guard them. It's the biggest expedition that France has put on for some time. It may even be the biggest they ever put on. I can't remember, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a very large uh, force. Um, Nelson is in the Mediterranean looking for them, which is uh, adds that undercurrent of tension, um, even as they he's even as they set off. But generally in those uh, times, any kind of um, travel by sea is viewed with great alarm by by anyone who's not a sailor, and even by many sailors. Um, I was reading an account by a French officer during the Battle of the Nile, and his ship's destroyed, and he he ends up clinging to some um, to some mast in the in the sea, and he writes really surprised me that he didn't he didn't know how to swim and that's uh that's a naval officer so yeah. I think even if if they don't know how to swim then uh pretty much guaranteed that uh, the soldiers don't know either so there's a lot of worry a lot of fear but things get off to a good start they've managed to take malta uh very easily um which is held by the knights of malta mm. um We've got a, a huge fortress there, a lot of guns, but the, the French are able to talk their way in and more or less bribe uh, the surrender. And from there, it's a, it's a quick hop and a skip across to close to Alexandria. But um, there, things are not quite so easy and not quite so friendly. So the French were kind of expecting that the locals, well, they're not exactly welcome them, but not be too... Um, hostile, but the local uh, Mameluk uh, warlords, uh, Mamluks are kind of um, slave soldiers who worked their way up to being um, governors of Egypt and, and managed to win autonomy uh, for Egypt, um, even though it was nominally part of the Ottoman Empire. So these Mamluks, um, they fought back, they settled their differences with their overlords, the Turks, who also um, were prepared to fight back. So when the French arrived, um, Alexandria didn't open its uh, open its gates and say, oh, uh, we've been waiting for you. Um, there was actually a siege and the French had to storm Alexandria and to take the harbour so that they could bring their, their ships into to harbour and unload all the supplies that they brought with them. So it wasn't a great start. And of course, the French had arrived set off a bit late and they'd arrived right at the hottest time of the year um so um although everyone expected it to be hot and everyone had complained in malta already that it was very hot then egypt came as a as a bit of a shock 
Oh yeah, I can imagine. And were they, the uniforms were woolen ja- woolen uh, woolen jackets, weren't they? Exactly. So they were. <laughs> it were <laughs> they're not the best, not the best uh, costumes to be wearing. But um, you, by reading the accounts, and I've I've done quite a few of them in in the book. Uh, it's all based around uh, the accounts of the soldiers. So the worst were the cavalry. So obviously they didn't bring many horses with them. And so when they um, they landed, the the cavalry had to carry their own saddles. So uh, you can imagine wearing those. You know, a uh, few of them had uh, sort of brass helmets and um, woolen clothes and riding boots, and then they tried to carry these saddles. It was, uh, it was they were tough. They were tough men. Yeah, you'd have to be, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but the other problem with Egypt is there is the massive logistical problem that anyone that's campaigned in Europe won't have to worry about, and that's the desert. So how much of a strain did, did this put on to, on the army? It was uh, an enormous strain. So, um, as you say, Europe is a little bit different. The French were sort of used to living off the land, especially somewhere like Italy. There was um, land of plenty um but in egypt um food and water uh were a huge problem so the french landed quite a lot of ships biscuit so their immediate concerns were sort of taken care of everyone got a a ration but um the lack of water was very quickly a major problem um it's not just for the men but obviously uh in those days um Cavalry and artillery needed horses. Uh, artillery needed to be pulled by horse. Um, and the, there wasn't enough water for the men. There certainly wasn't enough water for the horses. And um, I think one of the problems was that the, for some reason, the French had managed to remember to bring a grand piano with them, but they hadn't bought sufficient containers or canteens to carry water. So um, the troops were often left um, waterless. For, for numbers of days and um in that kind of heat willpower alone will not do you need you need to be drinking um so in the accounts by the soldiers that's one of the immediate and very uh very quick problems to manifest itself is this lack of water yeah and then the, the, there were other sort of things that we don't perhaps consider but um lack of firewood so um when you're marching across the desert and you want to cook your camel meat or or soup, um, and there's no brushwood or, or firewood around for 10,000 men, um, it's a huge problem. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of adjustments needed to to be made early on, and um, in the accounts you get an awful lot of moaning um, about lack of uh, decent bread, or that, no wine no water, right from the start, there's, there's the real issues. And, of course, moaning was totally valid, but there was a real risk of um, of dying of thirst and, and starvation, especially as Napoleon's big plan was, um, rather than march down the Nile, he was going to uh, sweep across the desert quickly so his enemies didn't have time to concentrate, which sounds good, but um, sweeping across the desert when you've never been in a desert is not an easy thing to do. No, no. I mean, um, we, we've done quite a few crusading episodes recently. And uh, one of the things that when the European knights tried to do the same thing, they came a cropper. But the Saracens and the other 
uh, sort of the Mameluke empires used to travel mm. from water water hole to water hole. Yeah. Um, so they could keep their armies fresh. And you had this amazing account of in there of the French finding a well and with it and them quickly drinking it dry, and yeah. not everyone got water. And, and I, I, that was just sort of terrifying. That must have been absolutely terrifying. That wasn't the, the men crushed to death and things trying to get to the water. That's right. I mean, I think if you you know ten thousand men arriving in a village at any one time is it's a lot of people to uh, to distribute stuff to, but ten thousand desperate thirsty, uh, angry men. Um, it doesn't get issued <laughs> efficiently or easily. Um, so they, there were quite a few episodes like that. Um, and like I say, the, there's a real lack of containers. So they drink the well dry and then they have to be off again to, um, to the next well. It gets a bit easier when they get to the Nile um, because they can start drinking Nile water, whatever that tastes like. But it, that's a bit better. Yeah, I, I imagine if they've not really had much to drink for two days, it probably I think tastes, it probably tastes quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in retrospect, although yeah. I, I did love the continual complaints about the, the some of the letters back, it's like I can't wait to get home. I keep picturing about being at home and drinking a nice red. <laughs> just, <laughs> it really tickled me. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but the French do get to Cairo. That's not the end of the campaign, and they get kind of met by disaster, don't they? Yeah, things um, very quickly get worse. Um, so you have this very dramatic, very glorious um, battle of the pyramids, which are not quite next to the pyramids, but um, you can more or less see them. Um, and that opens the doors, open the gates of Cairo, and the French are able to march into the capital, which is very important, obviously, in terms of conquering the country. But very soon afterwards, word comes that the French fleet up in uh, up in the north um, by the the Nile Delta at a place called Abukir has been intercepted at last by Nelson, who traps them between two fires and destroys them in a huge battle. And when word of that gets down to the French army, then obviously that's a huge and devastating blow uh, to morale because it means there's no there's no real way, no easy way back. Um, all the transport ships are pretty much um, trapped in Alexandria Harbour, but with the warships gone, the British very much rule the waves. Um, so that's not a great beginning to the campaign. And Nelson's victory, you know, in a way, gives uh, support to those countries that have been wavering about uh, restarting the war with France and it will eventually lead to the birth of a new coalition, a new alliance against France and the Turks I think probably had um, Nelson's victory not taken place might have perhaps come to terms um, and negotiated some kind of settlement with Napoleon but Nelson's victory means that they become overtly hostile now and um, very quickly so what they do is, um, and this might sound familiar to uh, to listeners, that they declare jihad, um, uh, which is holy war on the French, mm. and that's in September. And then uh, in October in, in Cairo, there's a huge revolt where the people, I mean, it's only a few months since the French have arrived, um, but the... Um, 
the opposition start um, smuggling in insurgents and um, there's a lot of popular hostility to the new arrivals. And so that breaks out in a huge and very brutal uprising, um, the Cairo Rebellion, Cairo Revolt, um, which is very brutally put down. So there's great slaughter. Napoleon brings artillery into the streets. I mean, he's always doing that. Yeah. <laughs> he does it again. Um, he imposes huge fines on the city authorities. And even as weird things like the French stable their horses in the central mosque as a kind of um, ritual humiliation. Um, they behead the ringleaders. So um, it's all the classic signs of an occupation that's already starting to go a bit, bit wrong, excessive violence and there will be consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when when you start doing things like, you know, stabling your horses in the mosques, that then gives, feeds yeah. fire to yeah. uh, the, the insurgents. Exactly. I, 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 yeah. I did, do the First World War and the Second World War and German occupations like, well, if you're going to kill one of our men, we're going to shoot 10 of your civilians. And then that just upsets people even more. And then you get more rebels and it's the same sort of thing. Exactly. And, and I think the sense of isolation, I mean, the French are already feeling that sense of isolation. It's a huge, a lot of people perhaps don't appreciate just what the, some of the distances involved and the fact that the French are confined really to a few key towns and the rest of the country is hostile and um, dangerous. Um, and that kind of um, sort of uh, kind of specific mindset develops from that mm. so the French get quite brutal but the revolting Cairo is, is a very it's a very nasty episode it's not a great start to the occupation and that's uh, was it the the I've sort of lost track but there was where General Dupree was murdered with his staff that's was, right. was that yeah. yeah which is, must have been a big blow as well to lose lose a general to insurgents yeah so he was the the governor of Cairo so that's not a great not a great start and um there was a lot of um, a lot of the civilians that had come with Napoleon. So Napoleon not only brought an army, but he brought a, a band of scholars and um, intellectuals to uh, to study Egypt and Egyptian potential and Egyptian archaeology as well. Quite a few of those found themselves in Cairo and were were, were massacred, or their their um, their scientific instruments were smashed and broken. So yeah, it was. Uh, it's a very bad, uh, very bad start. Yeah, it was probably something that they didn't really bank on going in because you didn't get that kind of behaviour uh, in like European campaigns until sort of the Peninsula mm. War. I, I think it gets a bit uglier. Um, that's that's right. I mean, there was nothing. There was no. There's no real sense um, in the accounts that I, I read and included of um, what to expect from Egypt. So, uh, of course, there's always hope that um, you'll be. Well, you'll be met well, or there'll be a welcome, um, or at least people might be a bit indifferent. Um, but there was no real sense that people would be hostile, which I found quite surprising, given the, the differences between the two sides. Um, but they'd never been anywhere uh, quite like it, so um, they didn't really know what to expect. And it, it, it turned hostile quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So, what what did the two sides of, of of the conflict make of each other? Because this is quite a, as we sort of gone gone over, it's, it's quite a yeah. The, the two think, very separate cultures. 
Yeah, very different. I think the best way I can sum it up is mutual incomprehension. So I haven't looked at too many um, accounts by those on from the Egyptian point of view. There were some chroniclers and historians uh, who who lived through the occupation and wrote accounts of it, um, which have been translated. Some of them have been translated French and into English. So they're out there. But I haven't included them. Um, too many of those in books. I'm trying to look at it from the point of view of the French um, soldiers and scholars. But um, what you get from just looking at those is that um, they would they were generally um, hostile to the uh, invasion. It was a foreign occupation by non-believers who were on a crusade, and that thing, that sort of thing, does not go down terribly well. Um, a couple of um, examples of indifference to, to the French, but there are very, very few um, friends or, or supportive of, uh, of what the French were trying to do. Um, in fact, I think there's the only positive, really positive remark I came across from an Egyptian was um, someone who really admired wheelbarrows. So the French were using wheelbarrows to transport dirt. And this Egyptian looked at them and thought, hmm, that's actually quite a good idea. And that's so <laughs> that's the only nice thing, that's the only nice thing I could find um, <laughs> from the Egyptian point of view. And it has to be said that the French attitude to the Egyptians was also pretty universally negative. Mm. So, I mean, these are sons of the French Revolution, for a start. They're, they're waging war. Um, in a, in a sense, is a bit of an ideological war. Um, so they're very, very hostile to uh, Islam. Um, they blame uh, the that they blame that religion for the 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 lethargy of the locals. What they see is lethargy. Uh, what they see is the ignorance, um, the lack of interest in things like science or or development and generally criticize them roundly for for lack of curiosity for example it's a quite an amazing episode where the french have bought some uh, hot air balloons with them so they've got a little uh, company of balloonists um which the french armies were using uh, in europe as kind of observation balloons yeah but they bought a couple with them to france and some of them was were sunk in a in a shipwreck in Alexandria, but some of the equipment uh, got made its way down to Cairo, and they they they, they had a uh, unmanned flight, and um, the French were really pleased with themselves. But they looked around at the faces of the crowd, and the people just weren't bothered about it. <laughs> and uh, they they take that really badly, and um, they blame uh, they blame religion for it. Um, and the other thing, well, I have to say, we're talking about. Uh, a French army here, um, so perhaps there's a, a little bit of bias creeping in, but um, local treatment of women goes down really badly. So we get a lot of um, descriptions of um, women in burqas and how um, enslaved they are and how badly treated by their, their men folk. Um, yeah. And again, this is blamed, largely blamed on uh, uh, on religion. And conversely, the Egyptians, when they look at uh, the few French women that came over, um, uh, take very badly to seeing uh, women that are not veiled. So mutual incomprehension, 
never the twain shall meet in a, in a in a real sense this is one of the first big meetings um between uh east and west albeit very heavily colored by the fact that it's war and invasion and you have to take make allowances for that this is a hostile uh environment and people aren't writing um nice things about threats and um and potential dangers and uh, again with it being french soldiers the the sort of prohibition on alcohol also went down very very badly with the french soldiers um but um things um improved a little bit when they uh, french established africa's first brewery which was <laughs> opened by monsieur royer in 70 late 1798 wow <laughs> that's pretty cool <laughs> I think generally what we get from the the accounts is that there's a general sense that if only they were more like us, uh, they would be happier people. I mean that that sort of comes through from all the all the accounts. Yeah, yeah, and if there's no local booze, we'll just make our own. <laughs> soldiers being soldiers. Uh, I, I know I'm I'm going off in completely the wrong direction, but it just makes me think of Sing Tao beer. Uh, yeah. um, when the Germans set up their colony in China, it's like, well, the beer here is atrocious, so we're going to make Bavarian-style ale here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, uh, soldiers and sailors being soldiers and sailors. Yeah. <laughs> but, so we've got Egypt. It's fi- Egypt is finally sort of roughly held by the army. And yeah. Napoleon's now setting his sights on Syria. Hmm. How did that campaign go? Was it, as we've sort of expressed, we've talked about his, he's not get, his logistics must be massively strained by now, especially that he's not going to get any more reinforcements from France. He's got yeah. no warships. Is it even, is it, is it a bridge too far to push into Syria? Um, it, it is really considering the number of um, troops that he has available, but it's also something in a way that he has to do. So it seems like a really strange and almost perverse uh, course of action. I mean, Napoleon's not really someone to sit around and, and do nothing. He's, he's um, hyperactive. But um, this idea of invading the Holy Land um, seems sometimes to be uh, almost like a sort of quixotic adventure, but it's it's not. He defeated the Mamelukes um, and established some control over the main um, centres of Egypt. But some of the Mamelukes had fled across to Gaza and and Syria, Palestine and Syria. And um, some of the local warlords uh, were giving them uh, assistance. And by now the Turks, the Ottoman Empire is also getting into gear and sending money, uh, weapons and increasingly men into um, Palestine. The area around Damascus, a large army was forming up and in true Napoleonic style, because this is the kind of thing he did, um, he decided Napoleon decided he would strike first before before this army got together and came over into in, into Egypt and perhaps sparked uh, another uh, uprising. So he he his I think his vision was relatively sound, but of course he didn't really have enough um, enough men to keep. Egypt passive and to to make a lasting um occupation of the the Holy Land. Um and the move, he didn't obviously share his vision with the soldiers because the soldiers all thought they were going to India or going to go home via Istanbul. Um so I think um a, a campaign in, in Palestine did come as a as a bit of a, 
a shock to them. But on the plus side, Palestine um, in the spring is a much easier place to live off. Um, so uh, um, some really quite touching accounts of when the French um, come through Gaza, they see olive, olive trees and orchards and it reminds them of home, um, things like that. Um, but then they soon come against Acre Saint-Jean d'Acre, um, which is, a, as you mentioned, a, this this land was um, um, crusading land, and that's one of the big crusading castles. Uh, and it resists with British and Turkish help, and Napoleon is uh, defeated there and uh, has to come all the way back to Egypt, um, this time with far fewer soldiers with him so it wasn't it wasn't a success but there is some logic to his madness so it wasn't sort of a case of hubris of well let's just keep going and see where we can go it was uh it was a i think a it, logical yeah, it was lost. logical I, I think if it if if it were hubris i think he would have gone to jerusalem um, um yeah. which he didn't do um if he was you know being uh the, the egotist that many people uh say that he is uh, that would have been a temptation for him so i think it was it was it was quite um quite yeah it was logical oh, absolutely riding into jerusalem on a white horse that's oh, that, loved the name in the history book that would have been <laughs> that would have been ego fuel <laughs> <laughs> and i've just got the image of the painting of him going across the alps on the white horse but the uh, the ottomans also strike at e- strike at the french in egypt don't they how how does that go they do so as i mentioned when I just touched on the campaign in, in the Holy Land, the, the Ottomans were getting into gear um, and um, starting to supply men to um, to the warlords of the uh, Middle East. But they also had their own huge armies and the British were um, able to, to intervene and assist. And one of those um, armies gathered in the island of Rhodes um, in uh, in the summer of uh, 1799, and um, the British helped uh, escort it across to Abukir, where we have a second battle of Abukir, um, uh, which is the one um, a street in Paris is named after. It's not named after the terrible disaster. <laughs> the one the we don't talk about. <laughs> That's the one they don't talk about. But... Um, this one uh, is really quite um, an astonishing victory. Napoleon comes up from from Cairo, and um, they they more or less the Ottomans haven't gone inland very far. They've uh, dug in along the coast, um, and the French completely um, roll over the trenches and um, and um, chase them into the sea. And um, there's a there's a huge massacre and um yeah it, it's um it's what is called in many history books a glorious victory but it's uh it's a pretty brutal episode but it gives napoleon a a victory and perhaps with the benefit of hindsight we can see that's a good thing to finish on if you're preparing for an exit yeah which uh which he then does he does a <laughs> uh, i was going to say what how trying to make it sound like brexit and all i thought well the egypt's an exit so exit off oh, damn it um, but yeah he, he <laughs> that's why I don't, i'm not a comedian um but he does uh he does leave leave the army doesn't he 
he does he does he abandons the he abandons the army and um that doesn't go down very well so you get a lot of jokes that work really well in french um on um bonaparte so bon à partir ah, bon yeah. à départ um so they make you a lot of sarcastic jokes about how he just upped and left <laughs> um and um went back to france and landed in the south of France, uh, completely ignored quarantine, so there's no lockdown for Napoleon. Um, went up to Paris, and um, with his friends in government, they they uh, organised a coup, and Napoleon took over um, the government of France. But mm. that didn't go down terribly well with those he left behind him. So uh, there's quite a lot of uh, bad feeling there. Um, and um, they feel very abandoned, as they as they would. Um, yeah. There's a British blockade. Napoleon had managed to evade the blockade. Some say, and this is a conspiracy theory from the time. Some say that he was in cahoots uh, with the English, and the English were all too happy to um, return him um, mm. to get peace. But um, yeah, he de- he avoided the British, but the French army in, e- in Egypt was was would have no such luck. The only way they could get back was either to march across the North African coast, which is just not viable, um, and even then you've got to get across the sea at some point, or to to surrender. Um, and you're not going to surrender to the Turks, and the British presence is quite small, so. You're going to have to wait a little bit, and so they they end up really like a besieged army in a in a very big prison, but um, a big fortress rather, um, but still besieged. Yeah. So, what does happen to them in the end? Well, um, you get a few uh, morale really goes um, sinks to to rock bottom. There's a new commander though who helps revive things, General Kleber. And he does what he can to turn things around. Um, he does actually try to negotiate an evacuation with the British. But sorry to say uh, for British listeners out there that the British don't play fair. <laughs> Surprisingly. <laughs> and say, no, we never agreed to that. So Kleber has really left to his own devices. The Turks, meanwhile, have brought a big army through Gaza and into Egypt. And Kleber manages to defeat them, but then there's a second revolt in Cairo, and yeah, he he manages to cling on, and things seem okay, but then unfortunately, he's um, he's assassinated by what the French call a fanatic uh, in the summer of seventeen ninety nine. So he's stabbed by um, a student, and um, I, I could do a weird fact alert. But the assassin uh, is captured and he's um, he's impaled. Um, French don't normally impale people, but no. local a bit of local custom. And his skeletons actually um, smuggled back to France when the troops leave. And uh, it was actually on display in uh, the equivalent of the, the French Natural History Museum until 1937. Wow! Really? When it went into storage, so I still. Still in Paris. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so the, the unusual 
unusual discoveries when I was uh, researching the book. But um, after Kleber, what happens next is you get a, and I've got quite a soft spot for the next guy to take charge. He's called General Menau, or Menu, and he he went native. He married um, a local woman, converted to uh, Islam, and he thinks he can make a colony by being reasonable. Um, you know, we can all get along. Everything's going to be fine. Um, but unfortunately, he falls out, not with the Egyptians, but he falls out with the French generals. And uh, that's really bad timing because finally, uh, it took them a couple of years, but the British have arrived and uh, landed two invasion forces, one in um, one close to Alexandria and uh, another, including sepoys from India, has uh, landed on the Red Sea coast. And so... Well, it's only a matter of time, but the French um, eventually they surrender and um, the troops go home. Uh, but a lot of the goodies, including a lot of Egyptian artifacts, um, first amongst them the Rosetta Stone, uh, mysteriously get confiscated and end up in the British Museum. That's a surprise. I was going to say, as as things do, they <laughs> <I> do. <laughs> So that's um, an end to to the glorious adventure. I would say that um, just by way of conclusion, that it was an enormously costly um, expedition, really quite quite bloody. And the outcome really wasn't well, unintended consequences. So the Turks uh, sort of um, reimposed their their rule over Egypt, but this time with a lot of British um, support. Uh, so the British find themselves as um, as favoured uh, allies in Egypt. But I think um, Napoleon's adventure sort of planted, planted a seed a little bit in, certainly in French minds, that um, the Middle East and Africa could be a place for potential future empire. And of course, just 30 years afterwards, they um, they occupy uh, Algeria and um, start to add the... Um, other Mediterranean coastlines like uh, Lebanon and um, places to to their empire. So it kind of it, it's an odd it's an odd episode. But for those taking part, I think it was you get a real sense that it it was adventure, tragedy. But they look back on it um, with a real sense of pride that they'd sort of endured this and um, survived. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we like we were saying about the the conditions in the desert and the lack of water. The fact that the army was still there the following year, um, yeah. even well after Napoleon had left, and that there was still a, a, a fight, I yeah. use term lightly, fight, sort of fighting force, is an amazing event. And and it, as you said, it, it, the whole expedition is a learning curve for future endeavors. Yeah, and I think on a you know, you, you kind of have to take your hats off to them. They didn't. They didn't fall apart. They were still a cohesive um, body of men, and right to the end, um, even though morale was was bad. And a, part of that is because the the consequences of um, of just simply giving up were were terrible. But also, I mean, these were very experienced and veteran soldiers, and um, they had a real sense of you know, standing together or or, or falling. So, uh, yeah, yeah, reading their, their letters and diaries and, and to a lesser extent their memoirs, because memoirs tend to get embroidered, you can can really see how, how tough they were. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and in such a, a foreign uh, climate, foreign culture. Yeah. It, I mean, everything like... about, absolutely everything about Egypt was hostile. Uh, the weather was hostile, people were hostile, the animals were hostile, you, yeah. you name it. Even the, some of the food was hostile. <laughs> and then probably the Nile water as well. <laughs> that was, I'm sure that was hostile. <laughs> Braver men than me, I wouldn't drink it, but... <laughs> <laughs> You stick to but the beer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> beer won't kill you, apparently. <laughs> Just in brackets, I'm not a doctor. Don't take that as medical advice. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, this would be really interesting. Thank, thank you for coming on and uh, talking about this campaign. I, I know I've, I've learned quite a lot from it. Um, but could you remind everyone the title of your book and when, when it's due out and where they can get it from? Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's called Napoleon's Invasion of Egypt, an eyewitness history. It's published by Amberley, and I think it's literally just been published in the last day or two. And it's available in all good bookshops and many of the bad ones. Absolutely. And uh, talking of bad ones, we'll put it on our bookshop, which is a good one online. Good um, one. Which means uh, the podcast gets a tiny slice of any revenue, but you as an author will get more money than if it went through one of the bad online ones that may or may not sound like a rainforest somewhere. <laughs> mentioning no names. No, because I will get sued and I don't have any money. <laughs> but thanks again for, uh, for coming Brilliant. on and talking. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thanks again. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.